What does it mean to be human? And do Christians experience the same losses, wrestle with the same fears, and struggle with the same inadequacies as those who don't know Jesus? In this sermon series, we are looking at the human experience to discover what it means to be fully human and fully devoted to Christ. Well, good morning. With uh, Jer, I want to welcome you as well. It is uh, it's nice to have you in here on this uh, July, not long weekend, um, but just July Sunday. As I said last week, uh, people head out of town uh, during the summer, but people come into town. And so I want to welcome you along with uh, Tiff and Jer in terms of if you're one of those who joined us perhaps for the first time today, you're visiting, you're from out of town, Great to have you here. Regular Westsiders, always great to have you here as well. Thanks for being with us once again. We are uh, continuing on today in our summer series called The Human Experience, a summer series that will lead us all the way until September. Uh, over the last three Sundays, we've looked at the shared common human experiences, emotions of things like apathy and joy and sorrow. Today we are looking at the emotion, the experience of shame, uh, a huge topic, an important topic, a weighty topic, and so because it's so weighty and important and our time is not limitless, let me give you the outline on the outset and then I'm going to pray. I'm not going to waste a lot of time at the beginning. I want to get right into this and use the time as best as I can. So my outline that I'm going to give you now is really built upon five questions, centers on five questions that I want, to, I want us to address on this topic. Let me give them to you. First, what is shame? Secondly, what is the difference between shame and guilt? Thirdly, what brings shame? Fourthly, how do we attempt to deal with our shame? And then finally, how do we rid ourselves of shame? Let's pray together. And so, Father, for the this, this sake of the freedom of your people, I pray that you would move and work today for the sake of your name and by way of your grace and through your word and the power and the movement of the Spirit, I pray that you would go to places as Tiff prayed about earlier, go to places that need to be dove into, help us to reflect and consider those things that right now we're fearful to, to think about and consider. I pray that you would use me in spite of me. I'm a man most fallible, a man full of error, and therefore I need you to work, please, I need you to work through your word which is infallible, through your word which is inerrant. Please speak to us by way of your word. Help us, I pray. I pray that good things would go on today. Um, again, for the sake of freedom and for sake of the glory of your name, and nothing else. And I pray for these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So five questions that we're going to be looking at in the few minutes that we have together. The first being, what is shame? When we talk about it, what are we talking about? Well, Webster's, you can always start with a, a definition coming out of a dictionary. Webster's defines shame as a painful emotion 
caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety, improper behavior, for example, a condition of humiliating disgrace or disrepute. That's a definition of shame. It's helpful, but there's more to shame than what a simple definition can capture, isn't there? There's a lot of emotion attached that just can't be defined with a sentence or two. Ed Welsh, in his book, Shame Interrupted, and I give a lot of credit to him in formulating some of my thoughts today, he helps us then when writing this about shame. Shame is life-dominating and stubborn. Once entrenched in your heart and mind, it is a squatter that refuses to leave. You might notice hints of it when you are embarrassed. You pick your nose in public and you get caught. You break out in acne and someone points it out. At those moments, you don't fit in and everyone knows it. There is a momentary rupture of relationships. You turn red. You wish you could die right on the spot. But there is an important difference between embarrassment and shame. Whatever caused your embarrassment has been experienced by everyone else too at one point or another. Your sense of social isolation was fleeting within the hour or within the decade. You laugh about it. With shame, you never laugh at it. It feels like unending embarrassment, but it is more than that. Embarrassment doesn't afflict the core of a person's soul, but shame becomes your identity. It touches everything about you. Embarrassment points towards shame, but it wears out over time. For shame to wear away, it feels as though the shame full person would have to wear away. And some people have tried such things. With Welch's words in mind, I was surprised to read on one psychology website this week on how one psychologist there in an article that was on the site suggested as the best way to deal with shame. Now, I know this doesn't necessarily represent the feelings of all psychologists, nor is it meant to be a disparagement on the field. It's just one example. They write, and I quote, The healthiest way to cope with shame is to own it and to allow it to dissipate with time. Like all intense events, shame eventually fades to be replaced by other emotions. No emotions, no emotion lasts forever. But is that true with shame? Is that true for the 60-year-old CEO a titan of industry who is still seeking counsel and freedom from the shame brought upon him by the harsh words of an alcoholic dad 50 years before? Is that true for the 45-year-old businesswoman who is still feeling the shame of her, her abortion in college and no amount of rhetoric or legal allowances for it is taking the shame away? The article continues. Second, alter the standards or the rules. If no standard has been violated, then one has no reason to worry about shame. In other words, if you did something that has brought you shame, something that you felt was wrong at the time, call it right now, and you will no longer have a reason to feel shame. Third, 
Avoid the self-blame game. The more one can blame an external source, the more likely one will avoid feeling shame. In other words, blame someone else if you can, and if you can't do that, blame something else, anything else. The culture, your upbringing, your generation, your makeup, just look elsewhere and cast it there. But there has to be another option. Doesn't there? Well, I'm going to offer that there is, and we'll get to it in a bit, but first, if that's what shame is, a painful emotion that entrenches itself in us, then question number two, what's the difference between shame and guilt? I ask this question because they can seem essentially synonymous, even though they're not. And yet, it's a difficult question to answer because there is certainly some overlap between them. Even in the definition that I read from Webster's earlier, the word guilt was used to help define shame. However, there are some distinct and very important differences between the two, and perhaps a helpful way to understand the differences is to associate guilt more with the feelings connected to a person's actions and shame more with the feelings connected to a person's makeup. As I I read from Welsh earlier, shame becomes your identity. So guilt says, I made a mistake. Where shame says, I am a mistake. Guilt says, I can't believe I did that. Shame says, I can't believe I'm the type of person who could do that. So let's say I go to a dinner party, we're sitting around a table, we're talking, we're joking around, and I make a joke at the expense of somebody else, it gets a good laugh, but I can see that I've hurt that individual. As I drive home that night, I might feel guilty, I do feel guilty for telling the joke, but I also feel ashamed for being the type of person who would hurt someone just to get a laugh. So guilt is deed-focused. This is what I did, where shame is character-focused. This is who I am, and this is where the overlap between the two shows up, because the things we've done or had done to us, the things that we've done or had done to us play a huge role in the shame that we feel and how we view ourselves and, in some cases, how the world views us, too. One of the reasons why this is such an important topic for us in the church is because in spite of many of us having had our sins forgiven, still live under a dark cloud of shame. And we believe this is to be our forever lot in life. I borrow this analogy, but let's say you killed someone, premeditated, fully intending to, you are arrested for the murder, but you lawyer up, get a good lawyer, the best that money can buy, and your lawyer does a great job, and after presenting their case, the judge declares you not guilty. And you walk, and it's great, right? It's great. You did the crime, but the judge declared you not guilty. It's fantastic, you're free to go. But then, in the darkness of the night, in spite of your freedom, 
and the declaration of not guilty, in the darkness of the night, while you stare at the ceiling in the middle of the night, you still feel shame over what you did. That's how many live the Christian life. Forgiven for something we've done, but ashamed still. Is that to be our lot? Is that where the power of the gospel of Jesus stops? It, it enables forgiveness, but it doesn't enable us to be shame-free. Is, is that the power that it has? It doesn't take too long to spend time in the Bible to come across examples of shame. It was shame that caused the Samaritan woman in John 4 to come collect water in the midday sun. She'd rather deal with the heat of the day than receive the scorn of her fellow vi villagers. It was shame that caused the bleeding woman in Matthew 9 to come to Jesus from behind and hidden in the crowd and say to herself, if I just touch his cloak, I will be made well. It was the fear of being shamed by his fellow Pharisees that led Nicodemus in John 3 to come to Jesus in the shelter of darkness. Shame drove Judas to suicide. Shame has caused the same many times since. Perhaps it's tempted you to this end as well. And shame caused Adam and Eve to run for cover in the aftermath of taking and eating. So two questions thus far. What is shame? What shame is? And secondly, what's the difference between guilt and shame? It brings us to our third question. What brings shame? Well, this is an endless list, as you can imagine. So let me sum it up this way. Shame comes by way of our sins those actions, and or the sins, actions of others against us. But let me expand on this and borrow from Ed Welsh one more time and say that shame comes essentially three different ways. Here's the first. Because of what has happened to us. Sexual violation, relational unfaithfulness, Verbal and physical abuse, rejection, neglect, noticeable physical differences that don't measure up to our culture's standards, and so on. But perhaps it wasn't one specific moment in time, but things encountered over a longer period. Not one hurtful thing said, but the many heard year after year. Maybe you didn't measure up to a sibling that they were favored over you. To borrow an analogy, that you felt like you were the last one picked for the team every single day of your life. Perhaps it was a parent calling you worthless, stupid, or lazy. Perhaps you heard again and again, I am so ashamed of you. But perhaps you never heard that, but you saw it in their eyes again and again and again. Perhaps you did measure up, but you feared that if you didn't, you, would receive the love, you wouldn't receive the love you did when you had. Perhaps the only time you heard I love you or I'm proud of you is after you did something exceptional.
Perhaps you were raised by scholars and you weren't. Raised by athletes and you weren't. Artists and you weren't. And you never quite felt accepted for who you are. So that's one way. Here's a second. Because of something we did. I don't believe that every wrong we commit, every sin we commit will lead to shame, but there are things that certainly can. Sexual sin, an addiction, something illegal, explosions of anger, for example. There are many more that we could add to this list. The third way, because of our associations, We can feel shame because of things that have happened in our family, for example. A suicide, a lack of money, divorce, a public moral failure, and so on. Sometimes our shame comes because we are single or childless, and people question why we are. Again and again and again. I was listening to a podcast recently where a representative from Germany was arguing that his country's recent open-door policy to immigrants and refugees isn't coming out of sympathy as it is, as much as it is feeling ashamed over the Nazi horrors of the 1930s and 40s. Shame, not sympathy, is the motivating force, in other words, at least from this person's perspective. This idea, this possibility leads to our fourth question. How do we attempt to deal with shame? Well, the first time, and some of you know this, the first time we ever encounter the idea, the topic of shame in the Bible is in Genesis 2, where we read in Genesis 2 verse 25 that Adam and Eve were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, it's really important for us to understand, and I think we do understand this, that they were not naked and unashamed because they felt they looked great. You know what I mean? Like, Eve, look at me pick this fruit. Do you notice my hamstrings? Right? It's not that. Like, I'm ripped. I'm not ashamed. I'm ripped. It's not what it's being talked about. The nakedness spoken of in Genesis 2 speaks of a literal and figurative nakedness. They literally and figuratively, physically and consciously had nothing to hide. Can you imagine that? Most, if not all of us, can't even imagine, begin to imagine this. I mean, just think, if unbeknownst to you, We put all of your names in a big bucket. You walk through the door off Homer, we wrote your name down, put in a big bucket, the bucket was brought out just like this. And I picked a name. And I said, come up on the stage. Stand with me on the stage and on the screen behind me, on the screen behind me, I'm gonna play a loop of everything there is to know about you. Your darkest secrets, thoughts, actions, your harshest words spoken, those moments of anger, of lust, of jealousy, of envy, of hatred, would you feel exposed? 
naked, as it were? Would you be fearful? Would you feel unlovable? Would you fear rejection, even from those closest to you? Would some be repulsed by what they saw? Would others turn their heads? Would some see you as a phony? One author, one author asks, what do you want to hide? That is a shortcut to identifying shame in your life. At this point in their existence, Adam and Eve had no temptation towards hiding. In fact, they had nothing to hide, nothing. There was nothing of guilt and shame in their lives. They were entirely and completely guilt and shame free. But then, one day they listened, one day they bought in, and then one day they ate, and this is the result coming out of Genesis 3, verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what is the result? Shameless no longer. And thus they ran and they hid and they covered and soon thereafter they blamed. They blamed each other. They blamed the serpent and they blamed God himself. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons why, it's not a by the way, this is one of the reasons why I believe in the Genesis account of creation, for we've been doing the exact same thing ever since. In our shame, we run like they did. And we hide like they did. And we cover like they did. And we fear being found out like they did. And we also blame others like they did too. Sometime, make no mistake, sometime our running is needed. We should run from certain things brought on by others. The sin of others against us, as we talked about earlier. But oftentimes, our running comes by way of our choices and decisions and the shame associated with them thereafter. I mean, we run all the time. We run, we run from place to place, church to church, city to city, relationship to relationship, all in a desperate attempt to get away from the shame that we feel. But however our running comes, even if it is needed, it is never good if it means we don't confront that which needs to be. But we don't only run like they did, we hide like they did too, and in so many ways. Most often we hide by simply not sharing or revealing, at least not everything, and therefore we hide by presenting someone other than who we fully and truly are. And thus, like the bleeding woman who hid in the crowd, or like the Samaritan woman who hid in the noonday sun, or like Nicodemus who hid in the darkness, we hide too. And we cover up as well. Our pursuit for success, covering the shame of never measuring up. Multiple partners covering the shame of abandonment. 
Humor covering the shame of ridicule. Busyness covering the shame of isolation. Cockiness covering the shame of past abuse. Saying yes to everything covering the shame of not being accepted. And good works covering the shame of hidden sin. But here's the reality. Try as hard as we might to cover up, our shame still bleeds out, doesn't it? In anger, in self-medication, in crazy amounts of exercise, in not eating, in binging and purging, Every vomit, a tangible picture that you don't feel the world will accept you as you are, that you don't accept you as you are, and that God doesn't accept you as you are either. In self-mutilation, a blood sacrifice of sorts. In out-of-control shopping, in sexual encounters, in workaholism, and so on, and so on, and so on, The vicious cycle is that some of these ways that we attempt to cover, or excuse me, the way it bleeds out of us in our attempt to cover is that much of our shame comes in how we express what we're trying to cover. In other words, our shame comes in our self-medication, and for us to get release from our shame, what do we do? We self-medicate again, or we go shopping again, or we hit the gym again. We do whatever we can again and again and again. It's a vicious cycle. I agree with some who write that what we call a self-esteem problem in our, in our society is more shame-based than anything else. The problem with shame, however, is that it's not all that impressed with niceties and accomplishments. It goes far too deep for those kinds of attempts to cover it. But as I mentioned a moment ago, our shame can also show itself in good things too. A striving for perfection, our humor, our work ethic, our generosities, generosity, things that benefit you and others, and yet all things propelled along by shame more than anything else. It's like I talked about earlier with perhaps the motivation behind what Germany is doing today. And if found out, like Adam and Eve, oftentimes we blame others too, our upbringing, our spouse our family, our parents, God, Satan, the church, you name it. This was the counsel from the one I quoted earlier, blame whoever and whatever as long as it takes the blame and shame, if possible, off us. But as I also posed earlier, there has to be another way. There has to be another way. I'd like to offer that there is, which takes us to our last question. How do we rid ourselves of shame? Well, you might find it of interest to know that the Bible talks 10 times more about shame than guilt. I point that out for most often when we talk about our sin, we talk about the guilt that comes from it, but rarely the shame that comes from it too and is promised to be taken away. The shame that is promised to be covered up when we bring our lives before God. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, let me explain by taking you back to the garden scene 
in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 and remind you of what's taken place. Adam and Eve were naked, they were unashamed, but then they sinned, they bit, immediately they felt exposed. And so they ran, they hid, they covered, and they blamed too. But here's the beauty of Genesis 3. The event doesn't end there. In their hiding, God pursues them, and he calls out to them, but that's not all he does. Notice what he also does in Genesis 3.21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them, covered them. The question is, why? The question is, why? Because they had already covered themselves. They'd already made loincloths. They already made loincloths out of leaves. So why? Is God down on making clothing out of plants? More of a leather guy? Right? What's going on? God, why do you... They got clothes, man. Well, that's not the answer. The answer is because for them, as well as for us, to be rid of our shame demands that God cover us. He's got to do the covering. And therefore, Westside and friends, please hear me in this. It demands that we stop running, that we stop hiding, and attempting to cover ourselves. It also demands that we stop blaming others and God for things of our own doing too. But what about the shame, Norm, what about the shame that we carry over things not of our own doing but done to us? Same answer. Come to the one who wants to cover you too. Not to hide your shame. God does not cover our shame to hide it but to rid us of it. Come to the one who knows you fully fully, and not only accepts you, even though he knows you fully, but chose you, even though he knows you fully, and loves you perfectly. Come to the one who not only knows your shame, but entered it, and became it, and endured it, and finally conquered it, for you. Why do I say that? What do I mean, became it, entered it? What do I mean by that? Well, listen how Isaiah describes our Jesus in Isaiah 53. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Resonate with anybody? Ever felt that? In our, in our city, he was despised and rejected by men. Does that resonate with anybody? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Does that resonate with anybody? No esteem from others. If they knew you, they would turn their heads. That's how our Jesus is described. 
And so we're invited to come to him. Come to the one born in a barn. We have no room for you. Raised in a nowhere town, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And who later said, I have nowhere to lay my head. Come to the one rejected by his family. He is out of his mind, they said of Jesus. Hated by his nation, he came to his own, but his own rejected him and conspired against him. Come to the one denied by his friends. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And sold out by those closest to him for a measly 30 pieces of silver. You could go on a nice vacation on 30 pieces of silver, but it wouldn't change your life. And finally, come to the one who died by being nailed to a cross. Give us Barabbas. We don't want him. But in a verse that I took you to last week, notice how the writer of Hebrews speaks of that death on a cross. When he calls us to, in Hebrews 12, to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a well-known text. I've taken you to this text many, time, many times over the years, but have you ever wondered what it means? I mean, two obstacles are mentioned in it. The first obstacle is the obstacle of the cross. The second obstacle is the obstacle of shame. The cross, no doubt, stands for all the pain, abandonment, and spiritual darkness of those hours. But what jumps out is that shame of all things, shame of all things, is the agony of the cross which the author of Hebrews mentions over all other choices. He mentions shame, and he writes that Jesus despises it. He despises shame. It's an interesting choice of words, but what the heck does it mean? Well, let me explain by reading the following from one commentator. He sums it up far better than I ever could. Shame was stripping away every earthly support that Jesus had. His friends gave way in shaming abandonment. His reputation gave way in shaming mockery. His decency gave way in shaming nakedness. His comfort gave way in shaming torture. His glorious dignity gave way to the utterly shameful, undignified, degrading reflexes of grunting and groaning and screeching. And he despised it. What does this mean? It means Jesus spoke to shame like this. Listen to me, shame. Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you are less than nothing. You are not worth comparing to that. I despise you. You think you have power? Compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, that is my power. Not you, shame. You are worthless. You are powerless. You think you can distract me. I won't even look at you. I have a joy set before me. Why would I look at you? 
You are ugly and despicable, and you are almost finished. You cover me now as with a shroud, but before you can say so there, I will throw you off like a filthy rag. I will put on my royal robe. You think you are so great, because even last night you made my disciples run away. You are a fool, shame. You are a despicable fool. That abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, these tools of yours, they are all my sacred suffering and will save my disciples, not destroy them. You are a fool. Your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. Farewell, shame. It is finished. Westside, that's what shame does. <coughs> it tempts us to look elsewhere to take our eyes off what is ours in Jesus or can be and look inward or outward anywhere but upward. It tempts us to run. It tempts us to hide, cover, and blame. It calls us to anything but Jesus, the one the first sacrifice in the garden pointed ahead to, the one who came as a result of our sin and was sacrificed for us to conquer and cover both the guilt and the shame thereafter. He is the one who covers our shame with his perfection, the one who doesn't simply declare his followers not guilty, but shameless. You are not simply not guilty as a Christ follower. You're innocent, blameless, perfectly righteous. <coughs> Westside, Jesus despises our shame not because he despises us, but because of what shame does to us. So come to the one who not only knows and experienced shame firsthand, but knows yours too, and he sympathizes. He invites you to come to him. He calls you to come to him, and he promises to clothe you, to cover you, so that you don't have to hide ashamed any longer. As Paul writes in Romans 10, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. But here's the thing, others might. Others might. I can't promise you that they won't, but he doesn't, and I can promise you that. Let me give you one more verse as we lead into a time of response coming out of Revelation chapter 3. This is the exhortation of Jesus coming out of that text. <clears throat> I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Would you stand with me, Westside, as we go into a time of response? As we go into this time of response, here's what I know some of you are thinking right now. Are you telling me that I can get over my shame by simply believing? It's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. I'm not even close to saying that. What I am saying is that shame tempts us to take our eyes off Jesus and believe things that are not true about us. 
as we walk through this whole idea of shame, my counsel, my exhortation as we go into this time of response is to fight for joy. Fight for joy, fighting, despising the shame that tempts us to take our eyes off that which is ours now in Christ. It's a battle, a daily battle that demands that we take up our daily bread, are given and strengthened by God, our daily bread to battle them. It will be a forever battle. And so I'm not simply saying, just believe this and you won't ever feel shame again. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that shame is a horrific thing, a despicable thing that we have to battle daily. But I'm also saying this as we go into this time of response. Our dealing with our shame demands that we stop running and hiding and covering it demands that we start owning too and confessing and sharing and opening ourselves up to at least someone. This is who I am. Exposed to you, this is who I am. And right now, that thought may scare you to death. So at the very least, perhaps your journey in this regard is simply bringing that fear to God and going, I'm scared to death to do that. For me to do that would demand an absolute supernatural outpouring on me because I do not have the strength in myself to do it. What it also means is that if somebody does come up to us and expose something of themselves that they've never exposed before, shared something else, knowing that the confession of these things brings healing. It demands that we respond with nothing else other than grace and mercy and gentleness. To respond any other way is wrong. To bring more shame on them is absolutely the antithesis of what we're called to do. And shame on us if we do. Let me pray. Uh, Our Father, I thank you that um, the good news that is ours through Jesus is powerful enough to not only rid us of the guilt of our sin, but the shame too. I thank you as well that if we've been rejected and shunned by others, we will never be rejected and shunned by you. You already know everything about us. No secret hidden. You know more about us than we know of ourselves. No secrets. And so I pray, um, I pray that in this time of response, that we would come to you as we come and we partake in the, the meal of bread and wine and juice, that, that this would be a really special time, a tangible time of us going, I, I want you, I need you, I need your covering. I know who you are, I've experienced some things about you, but I'm still living in this 
So I, I, I pray that that journey would begin today. Just one step forward today, I pray. And I, I pray, Father, as well, that if someone does come to us and say, I want to share with you that we would accept them like you accepted us as sinners, accepted and loved, not bringing condemnation, but grace. We're all broken people. For those that this journey will be perhaps a longer one, I pray that you would be gracious through others and um, other means as well, perhaps. I, I do pray for them. I know there are people in here that are really hurting. For those that are hopeless because of the things they've done, oh, Father, please fill them with hope. Fill them with hope today, I pray. Please begin healing them, I pray. And I pray for all of these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen.